everyone. My name is Kareem Chamey. I'm an associate professor of urology at UCLA, and I'm the moderator of today's session of Experiences with Gel Mito. This series is sponsored by Urogen Pharma on behalf of the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society. Today we have with us distinguished guest, Katie Murray. She's a urologic oncologist at the University of Missouri. She did her residency in Kansas with Jeff Hoseberline and did her fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering. She's an assistant professor. She's been there for six years, and she has a significant amount of expertise in the management of patients with upper tract urethral carcinoma. Today, she'll be talking about her experience with gel mito, both anti-grade and retrograde approaches, and she'll be briefly talking about her semi-live surgery session at the AUA this year. With no further ado, Dr. Murray, great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. So obviously, gel mito was approved in 2020. And if you actually looked at the manuscript, which was published in Lancet Oncology, every single patient in the study was treated in a retrograde approach. And I think to a large extent, most of us treated it in a retrograde approach because everyone is so fearful of the risk of seeding of the flank and the nephrostomy tract. First, tell us how many have you done in an integrated approach and tell us a little bit about your experience. Yeah, so I feel like I've had a unique experience. I've treated in total 10 patients with gel mito. I've treated two female patients via the retrograde approach. I'm currently in the middle of treatment on my eighth patient, the integrate approach via nephrostomy tube. And that's a combination of men and women that I've both treated that way. You're absolutely right where, you know, the 71 patients in the trial did all get treatment via cystoscopy in retrograde catheter placement. Of course, there's this huge fear. We all know urethelial cell can implant anywhere, you know, that it wants to. And there is a fear of putting an nephrostomy tube into that kind of kidney. My first ureteroscopy on the patient was in May 27th of 2020. He comes to me for a nephro-ureterectomy and I say, I'm not operating on anybody without looking. And so I look, it's low grade. And I had heard of gel mito and wanted to reach out. And he is a patient with recurrent bladder cancer, recurrent upper tract, low grade tumors. And he said, this sounds great. I don't want you to take out my kidney, but you're not doing that to me every week. I've had enough cystos in my life. I don't want that weekly. I hate stents, et cetera, et cetera. So he said, how about you just stick it directly into my kidney? And so I say, I gave him credit for that first idea. There, of course, is a fear of tracking that. If I had somebody with a big bulky tumor, right, they're probably not the right gel mito patient anyway, but I wouldn't put a nephrostomy tube into that. With patients with upper tract disease, um, and really put it into my operative report and very cautiously doing ureteroscopy and documenting exactly where my tumors are located, right? What calyx, and then documenting it along with my retrograde at the time so that when or if we decide to do gel mito, and if the patient chooses to do it antegrade, that I'm not putting that NEF tube directly into a tumor. Now, when we initially did the animal model work here, one of my fellows, Dr. Nicholas Donan, who was the first author on the original gel mito studies before it was called gel mito, we administered it in a porcine model, in a pig model, back, I think, in 2015. And when we instilled it, we did it both through a retrograde approach, and we also did it through an integrate approach. And 
we initially thought, well, you know, we're just doing it in an integrated approach because we wanted to make sure that gel mito doesn't get absorbed systemically. We expected a higher absorption rate through an integrated approach than through a retrograde approach. And the paper clearly shows that there's no significant systemic absorption of gel mito. But we didn't really think that this was going to take off because, you know, we were still under the impression that urologists were going to be too fearful to administer it in an integrated approach because of the fear of tracking along the nephrostomy tube tract. But when you did it, did you do anything different? Were you surveying patients more closely? How did you treat those patients different than retrograde as far as your surveillance or preparation ahead of time? I haven't really done anything different as far as a follow-up is concerned. I will say I now have several patients almost a year out after treatment who I've actually looked in their kidneys several times and for a little bit of durability, but I've also been doing CT scans, which is probably a bit more than you might argue that you would do on a low-grade patient you know, with small tumors that you're probably not going to pick up on a CT urogram or an IVP urogram. And so I have done that a bit more. Maybe, you know, that's just me being cautious, maybe because of that track seating. I've also done that on my retrograde patient. So I'm not sure that that's why I'm just keeping a close eye. The one thing I will say is, you know, the initial patient, I said, okay, well, how long does it take a nephrostomy track to formalize or heal, right? You know, you don't want to put an F-tube in and immediately put the gel mito in, in case it gets around the capsule of the kidney or something else. So I had talked to some other physicians and we thought one week seemed like a reasonable time. And that was just kind of a best educated guess as to what that safe time. You didn't want it to be too long. You didn't want it to be too short. A week seemed reasonable. So patient comes in, has the nephrostomy tube placed in my institution, interventional radiology places those. So I am very cautious in talking with them about where I want that tube to go, what calyx I want it to land in. And so we do that. And then they come back and see me one week later, first day of first installation, one week after nephrostomy tube, I've done an antegrade nephrostogram. Ultimately, what am I looking for? I'm just looking to make sure that I don't have extravasation of contrast, making sure that the tube is in a good location that it hasn't gotten pulled on. Installation one occurs on that day, and then they come back each week for the six-week induction course with the gel mito. Now, I've left the tubes capped, so not hooked up to a drainage bag, and I've sent everybody home with an emergency drainage bag, right? If you start getting obstructive symptoms, nausea, fever, flank pain, you know, just hook that tube up to a bag and let it drain. I've not had anybody have to do that. I've had one patient who came in, I believe it was around installation four or five. And she said, "Ah, I think I pulled on my tube last week. You know, I think it got dislodged. And I said, well, guess what? We go back to radiology. You don't get gel mito until we confirm your nephrostogram. So we go again. So any concern of a nephrostomy tube being misplaced, displaced, pulled on anything that looks unusual at the skin level, if it looks like it's out too far. I would definitely repeat to confirm placement prior to installation on that day. Now, when we did the initial studies in the porcine model, we actually instilled on day one. What's different between a pig and a human is that pigs' kidneys are primarily transperitoneal. So about two-thirds to three-fourths of the kidney in a pig is transperitoneal. And trying to get a nephrostomy tube through a retroperitoneal approach is pretty challenging in a pig. And plus, the collecting system of a pig is really quite different than a human. It's a lot more complex. 
And so we actually instilled on the same day of placement. And the peak levels of mitomycin C's found in the bloodstream in these pigs that same day that blood was drawn was about 25. You know, the dosage you'd see myelosuppression would be like 800. So the peak concentrations were like 25. And then we ended up taking out these kidneys later on, same day and later on. And we really didn't see any inflammation in the retroperitoneum. Now, from my experience, I do exactly the same thing you do. It's funny how we all (laughs) think alike. I do wait a week, or if they continue to have hematuria, I kind of postpone it until their hematuria (laughs) resolves. I do a integrated nephrostogram on the first installation, and then I actually stop doing nephrostograms. I do one initial dose. I get an x-ray, make sure the tube's in the right place. And as long as the tube's in the right place, I don't recheck it again, and I just administer it on a weekly basis. Do you adjust the volume at all? Obviously, in the study, we had to take three separate measurements of the renal pelvis so they can come up with the right dose. And so, you know, on average, most people around 10 milliliters is the size of the renal pelvis. But what I noticed is that when we did it in a porcine model, 10 milliliters really filled up a pig. But when you did it through an integrate approach, the kidney would accommodate more than 10 milliliters because part of it would kind of drain into the ureter. You'd see it kind of tracking all the way down to the proximal ureter. And so do you adjust your measurements at all, your volumes? So one thing that I found to be super helpful is, and part of this, I've been experimenting with it a little bit back and forth, but I've been trying to do all of my measurements at the time of my ureteroscopy and doing my measurements retrograde, you know, so you can get a true measurement of what that volume is and you're not pushing it down the ureter already. That being said, I think if you have live fluoro when you're doing your integrated nephrostogram and you're cautious, you can get a reasonable, it's got to be a pretty quick nephrostogram, meaning, you know, you got to fill out that pelvis before you start losing four or five cc's down the ureter. But, you know, if you do it controlled, I think you can get a fairly accurate measurement of both ways, kind of like keeping track of what calyx and where the tumor is in the renal pelvis. I've also been trying to add into my operative for anybody who has upper tract disease, doing a good retrograde measurement and documenting it at the time of diagnosis, just in case I want to do gel mito in the future. So I don't have to mess with the volume measurement later on. That being said, I have been decreasing the volume by about two cc's. And that's just to potentially account for whatever contrast volume I had, you know, in the tube or in the the ureteral catheter at the time of placement, instill the gel mito and then flush it with two cc's of saline, just so you're not gelling up in that tube. It will dissipate, go back into its liquid form and drain itself out. But it's nice to think that you're not gelling that up and it's staying in that tube that way for four to six hours. You know, when we did the initial pig studies, We instilled it bilaterally in both kidneys, and we did it only in female. This is something interesting, but male pigs actually have like curly Q penises. It's hard to put a catheter in a male penis and in a male pig penis. And so we put it in females, and we'd have a catheter in, and when we inserted the gel in bilateral kidneys, within a minute or two, you'd actually start seeing urine trickling out into the bladder. So I haven't been fearful of obstruction, but have you had any patients who've been obstructed at all? Or have you heard anybody who's used it and have had some obstructive symptoms? I don't know if it's because of the approach I've used in several patients, but of course, you know, ureteral obstruction is a concern and I've been lucky I haven't had that. My routine when I do somebody with upper tract and I relook in their kidney, I actually use ureteral access sheets 
and I've not had any trouble putting an access sheath in. So in my mind, if I can get an access sheath just to below the UPJ, I'm not dealing with any sort of stricture stenosis anywhere along that ureter. It's pretty straightforward and really not had any problems and then evaluate my ureter on the way out. So I've been pleased with that aspect of no adverse events with the gel mito with that administration. Wow, that's impressive. I mean, you know, when you actually looked at the Lancet paper, you had 58% of patients in the study who had some form of ureteric obstruction. And part of it, I think, was attributed to the fact that there was maintenance. And I think the maintenance may have increased it. If you looked at the people who had maintenance therapy, their ureteric obstruction rate was about 80%. And I think the people who had no maintenance therapy, I think it was closer to about 40%. Now, that's all great. From our experience, we'd give like a little bit of medrol pack around the fourth treatment. We'd notice there was some like transient edema from probably the mitomycin C. And we'd give them a medrol pack. And then by the next treatment, that significantly improved. But in your experience, do you think that we can actually drive ureteric obstruction rates to single digits? I mean, from eight patients, you've got zero. And you followed them for, you know, X months. And so that's pretty impressive. I would propose that, you know, I'm excited about it. I'm at the point where it's like every patient then you're waiting, thinking, okay, the next time I look, am I going to have problems? But I've not had any. So I would like to think that it is, right? The other thing that comes to mind is the mitomycin C, of course, but also don't take out of the equation the fact of somebody having, you know, a seven French or a five French ureteral catheter being placed up that ureter week after week for six weeks in a row. And, you know, we do measurements and you're doing, you know, fluoroscopy to confirm placement, you know, of that catheter tip being at the UPJ or wherever you're aiming for, but does it land in the exact same spot every week, right? You know, we've all been there. You have a patient who is in the easy stent placement and then all of a sudden one time it just doesn't go smoothly, right? And so what kind of trauma are you doing week after week? Now, in my practice, I have one day of clinic and I see like 50 patients in one day. And on the days when I used to actually instill gel mito, I wouldn't actually bring those patients in on that day because it's so unpredictable sometimes, you know, trying to get access up to the upper tracks, getting a wire up. And especially in a male, you know, if they've got an enlarged prostate, it's really kind of a challenge. And I would not instill gel mito in a retrograde fashion in the clinic on a busy clinic day. So I'd only reserve those on a Tuesday, which was maybe my research day. I'd go and kind of see those patients and treat them on that day. But do you think it's possible to actually do gel mito through an integrated approach during a very busy clinic? That kind of paradigm shift change? Yeah, I definitely think it is. I'll give, you know, my clinic as example. I do the same thing. Thursday is my all day disaster busy clinic, right? You see 40 plus patients and I do all my gel mitos around noontime, right? So we do take a break from noon to one. And so the nurses all break, but because the patient has a nephrostomy tube, it only is essentially a 10 minute installation. And that's mostly them sitting there for 10 minutes after I'm done. So patient comes in, what our routine has been, I do check labs on everybody each week. I've not had any, you know, myelosuppression or any other, you know, abnormalities. But come in, get their blood work done. We have a lab there in-house. And then the patient's actually gone, grab something to eat or drink, kind of do what they're going to do. Come back an hour later, right at noontime. We get them in a room. We inject them. They sit there for 10 minutes. They're out by 1230. And it's really not very disruptive to clinic at all. 
and I've heard so many other people talking about, you know, if you're doing it through a nephrostomy tube, does the physician have to be the person who's instilling the gel mito, right? Can it be an advanced practice provider or other individual in your clinic? And I think that it does open the window for so many other options to make it more feasible in a clinical life of day to day. Yeah. It's so easy to instill. It's almost kind of like once you've had it one way, how could you ever go back to the other way? Now, let's just say you deal with someone who you're kind of worried that they may have a potentially high grade. Their cytologies have been negative. You've taken a good biopsy and they've all been low grade. Do you check cytologies on them on a weekly basis? Do you think that's a possibility with the nephrostomy troop track? Can you send off a urine? I mean, is that something you think about? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. It's not anything that I've done or anything that I've been concerned about. I always think about that, especially kind of on the bigger side of tumors. You always think, okay, if I can get a good biopsy of this tumor, but you know, sometimes the biopsy you're getting is of that real papillary frondular stuff out on the pretty part of the tumor, and you're taking that and you're not getting down to the base of it, you know, as much on that biopsy, you know, or you're hiding a high grade down there. But I haven't done any weekly cytologies or anything. I don't think that the time frame from when your first diagnosis is, you do your treatment for six weeks, you look inside the kidney another four to six weeks later, you're going to do a cytology, you're going to do any four-cause biopsy. I just don't think that the two-month, three-month time frame is so alarming to me that I'm missing a high grade, that mm. I've lost much. Plus, sometimes the cytology takes two to three weeks, the results to come back <laughs> anyway, so I mean, I'll be all that helpful. Now, in your experience, any patients have a complete response or no response? I mean, all 10 patients of yours that you've treated, how have they done? I've had several complete responders, and I've had about three patients that I'm calling a partial response. Now, one of those patients had a lower pole tumor, and I put the nephrostomy tube down low, and at their first ureteroscopy, they had no recurrence in that lower pole, but they did have a recurrence up in the upper pole. Right. And so I've toyed with that patient in my mind a little bit, thinking if I would have put the nephrostomy tube in the upper pole the first time, would I have been more likely to prevent that and gotten more gel mito up there? I don't know the answer to that. But in the Olympus trial, everybody was complete responders or non responders, right? It was dichotomous, yes or no. And I think that actually loses a huge population of patients who are potentially great gel mito patients for us as urologists, right? How about those partial responders? How about that patient who you ablated the tumor down and then you gave them gel mito? And then when you came back, yeah, the tumor wasn't completely gone. So they're not a complete responder, but it was so minimal that an ablation was so much easier and so much more feasible. And I think that the data we have right now, obviously with the dichotomous result, misses that population. And that's a huge low-grade population that's of great interest. And have any of those 10 patients gone on to nephroureterectomy at all? I have not had any patients go on to nephew. Okay. So you've had some patients who didn't have a complete response, but did any of them have no response? So either they're partial responders or complete responders. Complete responders. I wouldn't call anybody the non-responder. And you managed those with laser or did you end up treating those with maybe another round of gel mito? Yeah. So I have a story on both of them. So a couple of patients, I have done small ablations of tumors and then had positive results thereafter. I do have a patient, the one who ended up with the upper pole tumor after the lower pole. And I said, you know what, maybe we just missed it. Let's try it again. So we were planning to do another induction course of gel mito, do another six weeks. She actually got halfway through 
And she said, yeah, let's look again, right? I want to look again. So we did three installations. It's about two and a half, almost three months timeframe. And she said, I want to look again before I keep going any of the treatments. So I said, okay, sounds reasonable. And she actually was a complete responder after that additional three doses. Wow. I don't know what to do with that now. Yeah, that makes it a little (laughs) challenging. I had a patient when we had the compassionate use study. This was before the study was open. I had a patient who had a solitary kidney and had about a two and a half centimeter tumor. And we didn't have a size criterion at the time. We didn't know what size to cut off. And so that was kind of left up to the providers to do what they wanted to do. And this guy had a sizable tumor that was bleeding. And I ended up instilling gel mito. And he was older. He lived in a nursing facility. And when he switched from one nursing facility to the other, it's a really sad story. Somehow one nursing home didn't pass on the fact that he was on Coumadin to the other. And he had a history of PEs and DVTs. And he went to the other facility. And so I gave him the first treatment. I gave him in the operating room. The second treatment, he came in the clinic. And then he didn't show up to his third treatment. And we called and we alerted the family, like, why isn't he here? They told me he just passed away. And oh my God, you know, he was part of the compassionate use study. We had to do an autopsy and we've had to find out the cause. And obviously the cause came out the fact that he had a pulmonary embolism because the nursing home forgot to give him his Coumadin. But we also asked them to take a look at the kidney. The two and a half centimeter tumor was evaluated by a pathologist who took the kidney and cut it up into multiple sections and could hardly see the tumor. It was microscopically there, but macroscopically you couldn't see it with either a ureteroscope or visibly. So with just two treatments, it chemobladed a two and a half centimeter tumor. So I think you're right. I don't know if we need to give six doses all the time. You know, maybe in the future, we can start looking at five doses and then looking up and four doses and looking up and finding, you know, the cutoff point that we have with prostate cancer when we used to give ADT for three years and we kind of whittle it down to find Mm -hmm. out where 18 months is no different than three years. And who knows, maybe four or three is the right number. But for right now, it's FDA approved for six. And so are you planning on maybe giving fewer doses and looking up there? Is that something you'd consider doing? I don't think that I'm going to do it routinely. I think also part of that is urologists. We know six weeks was also kind of picked out of nowhere. The six week BCG came in six files. And so that's where those things come from. So it's familiar to us. And so I don't have plans to do that unless I had a cause. I think, you know, a patient really wanted or maybe something else was happening that was instigating me to say, you know what, what's going on up there? I need to look. Now, one last point. Have you had any patients with ureteral tumors and have you tried to treat those patients with gel mito? So I can personally say of the patients that I've treated, I've not treated any ureteral tumors. I've heard some good stories anecdotally from other people that have. I actually just had a patient last week that I looked in. And so I'm kind of toying with the idea of doing that, a mid-ureteral tumor couldn't find anything else. And I'm making that out of my mind after listening to how other people have been giving it of how I would do that. In the compassionate use program, we actually did include patients who had ureteral yeah. tumors. So that was allowed and patients did have a complete response, but the same rate, about 50, 60%. Now the recurrence rate from upper tract cancers after endoscopic therapy is pretty significant. You know, if you actually do a pooled analysis over two and a half, three years, it's something on the order of 60% of patients have a recurrence. Of those complete responders, have you had any patients who've developed a recurrence? I've now have at least three patients who I have a year's worth of data, and I've not had any recurrences in that group. 
the next five years is where it's going to really make the difference. Also have been fairly aggressive in looking in their kidneys often. Every three or four months is what I've been doing on these patients. Again, coming up with then how long or how often do you need to really be looking at them? If I go a year and I've looked every three or four months and I don't see anything, you know, they say, okay, well, what do I get for year two? You know, how often do I have to have this done? I don't have a great answer for that. I'm hoping that that's maintained. And most patients, I think, tend to recur probably early on. And so I think the vast majority of those patients who had complete response will probably stay complete response if they've been complete responders and maintained it for a year. Any other advice or suggestions you have for the folks that may be listening in? Obviously, you've got a significant amount of wealth of experience with this platform. Any suggestions, tips, tricks that you've used to help make this process a lot more feasible and doable? No, I pointed out most of them, right? Think about gel mito early when you see somebody in the operating room. Do your biopsy, do your cytology, do your measurement, do it all so you don't have to come back later, right? If it does turn out to be that. One other thing that we really didn't talk about is physically injecting the gel mito into the nephrostomy tube. And Urogen, you know, supplies you with the Uroject syringe that's got a crank on it that allows you to kind of inject it in a controlled fashion. The one thing I have learned is I flushed the tube, I said, you know, with two cc's of saline. And I also put that two cc's of saline on the Uroject, right? And then do that, you know, and inject it through the nephrostomy tube in a controlled fashion. The first few patients, I put the gel mito in and then I try to just flush it through a normal syringe. And the patients would get kind of a jolt as that saline went through, you know, the nephrostomy tube. And so that's definitely something that I've started doing that's made a huge impact on patient satisfaction during the installation. Have you had to ever replace a nephrostomy tube at all or no? I haven't. Okay. So none of the patients had any occlusion or obstruction of their nephrostomy tubes. So they've all functioned fine. Yeah. Great. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure talking with you and learning from you. And I hope that people listening in can gain a significant amount of experience with this over time. But I think this is the future of gel mito, I think, being administered in an integrated fashion. And I think, you know, mitomycin with the gel is the first step. And I think, you know, obviously, Urogen has a big pipeline and they're looking to actually use other drugs for potentially higher grade disease. And so I'm looking forward to potentially treating patients with some of the drugs that are currently available for medical oncologists, but putting it with a gel and for us as urologists, administering it in, you know, through a nephrostomy tube track or in the bladder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you so much. And this concludes our podcast on experiences with gel mito. Again, I'd like to thank Urogen, the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society for sponsoring this podcast. Mm-hmm.